I never faced death or loss when I was 35, 40 years of age. It was an academic subject uh, to be uh, referenced later on in life. But now I'm in the middle of it. I know statistically that Gail or I, probably one of us is going to be gone in the next eight years. Sounds very gloomy, but you better face up to it. And even as we're talking, I'm thinking this morning in the obituary columns of the New York Times, a very famous man died one year younger than me. And I get these reminders every day that life is, is beginning to move toward its ending point. That's, that's the theme of the 70s. And there are other themes for the 60s, 50s, 40s, and 30s. So you're beginning new spiritual climbs about every 10 years. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick. I was first introduced to Gordon MacDonald in 1984. His just-off-the-press book, Ordering Your Private World, had become a bestseller, promising hungry leaders like myself an alignment of our outer and inner lives. In the mid-1980s, MacDonald's star was rising in the world of Christian leadership. After pastoring a large evangelical church in Lexington, Massachusetts, he went on to become president of World Relief and eventually became the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. But seemingly overnight, Gordon would fall from prominence, losing his job and ministry, his reputation and standing, after anonymous letters were written exposing an adulterous affair. Those were the years of highly publicized televangelist scandals. Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, caught up in separate sex scandals, both of whom became punchlines on late-night TV. But when McDonald's sin was exposed, he made a bold yet intentional choice to go off the radar and leave public life. For two years, he and his wife Gail took time away to rebuild, to dig deep into their inner world, to heal their relationship. Today, Gordon and Gail have been married over 53 years and live in Concord, New Hampshire. As I'm sure you will hear in this interview, Gordon has become a man who has experienced great redemption, who knows profound levels of grace, and who is filled with wisdom that I hope to one day have. Gordon serves as Chancellor of Denver Seminary and is an author, speaker, and teacher whose books include, among the many, Rebuilding Your Broken World, Renewing Your Spiritual Passion, Mid-Course Correction, and his most recent books, Going Deep, Becoming a Person of Influence, and Building Below the Waterline, Shoring Up the Foundations of Leadership. Gordon writes regularly for Leadership Journal and also writes a column which appears on leadershipjournal.net. As you listen, I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Gordon McDonald as much as I did and that you come away all the more amazed at grace. Gordon McDonald, thank you very much for taking the time today to talk with me. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be with you. My first question to you is... Uh, it comes from, I saw you give a Q conference talk in Boston, and you told the story, I believe it went back to 1968, where you heard the voice of God say, now you know what it's like to live out of an empty soul. Can you unpack what was happening in your life and, and what led to that? I've, I've, for a long time, I've had a theory about the longevity of life that people go through um, what I'll call crises of enlightenment about every seven or eight years. Something happens that's beyond our control or beyond our explanation. And for a moment, some people would call this brokenness. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative moment. It could be positive. 
Um, but it, more often than not, it's a negative movement. The moment you refer to in December of 1968, and I can tell you why I'm so specific about the date in a moment, was a, was a moment that came after many, many weeks that fall of, of tremendous high-pressure, stress-filled work at, at my church where I was a young pastor, I'm guessing about 31 years of age. Things had gone really well for two or three years after my seminary graduation. And now I was going through a very difficult period of time where it just seemed like every time I turned around, there was a problem with somebody or some situation. And I gave it my all, seven days a week, 15, 16 hours a day. And on a Saturday morning, I came down to breakfast. Gail was, my wife Gail was fixing breakfast for our two children and me. And I came through the door and I said, uh, I can't stay for breakfast. I've got to go to the office and get started on my sermon. I don't even know I'm going to preach about tomorrow morning. And she turned around and said something like, um, tell me, do you intend to live the way you've been living for the last several weeks? Because this is not what I thought we bargained for when we got married. And um, she was dead right. I, I had to just completely gotten absorbed in the work. And my reaction to her was not to argue or to be defensive, but I just started crying. And it wasn't just crying. It was crying. I was sobbing. I couldn't control myself. I'd never had a moment like that before in my life. And I heard the kids coming down behind me from their bedrooms, and I escaped into the living room and threw myself on the couch. And I wept nonstop for four hours. And Gail got the kids off to a neighbor. She knew something dramatic was happening. And she just held me in her arms. And that whole morning, I just cathartic. I, I remember asking myself, is, is this what it means like to have a nervous breakdown? Am I going crazy? What the heck is going on? This has never happened before. And finally, around noontime, my tears dried out. And I sat for the next several hours asking the question, what was the message in all this? Where did the tears come from? Were they, were they tears embedded in my DNA, the tears of many generations of my father, my father's fathers? Or were they the tears of an unhappy childhood that was finally getting released? Or was it just simply that uh, my whole system, body, mind, soul, had had it after all these weeks? And in the middle of all that thinking, and I don't claim this very often, came a message from heaven, and you quoted it. It was this question or this statement, now you know what it's like to live out of an empty soul. And that, I think, is the first time as a young man I began to face the recognition that I'd been living my life of leadership on the external parts of myself, my, my skills as a leader, my ability to use words, to preach, to persuade people, to charm people, which is what a lot of young pastors do. We all trust our, our outside or external skills. And what I felt the Holy Spirit saying to me that day is, you have completely ignored the fact that there's another part of you much larger than the outside part that you're ignoring. You have no idea what to do with it. And that became the day when I began to search the whole question of, they call it soul care now. What does it mean to care for the soul? What does it mean to build up this inner space which I've come to believe is as large as outer space. We, we know what outer space is out here. Um, what if each of us has an inner space in another dimension that is as large as the outer space? And that piqued my curiosity. I began to get into the literature of the soul, what it means, who was the interior Gordon? 
And I began to realize I had done very little work of exploration. And so I would tell you that from that point forward, a large part of my own life has been take up, taken up in exploring the soul. And my theme verse would be the last verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be wicked ways. Lead me in the way everlasting. Which it seems to me is the writer's recognition of the same thing that I was dealing with. If my soul is empty, Lord, please show it to me. So that was the day I began journaling. That was the day I began to acquire some degree of knowledge about what Sabbath rest was all about. That was the first time, although it came much later in depth, that I began to explore the subject of community and how the people around me can be God's spokesman into my life. So that was one of the most important events of my whole adult life, where God, you could say God struck me down and said, there's a whole part of your life you're ignoring, and if you don't begin to build in that area, you're not going to last a lifetime doing this. And that's the inner life, the life of the soul. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I must tell you that up to that time, and still even to this day, I always feel inadequate in this area. I remember uh, a girlfriend saying to me in college, why can't you pray like some of the other guys pray? Your prayers are so uh, shallow. (laughs) And, you know, to this day, when I lead people in prayer, and I have a very firm belief in the role of pastors praying for people in the the worship service one-to-one, I still hear that voice from uh, almost 55 years ago. Why don't you pray like the other guys? You're so shallow in your prayers. And it's it's an intimidating little voice. But I think it's a, if I were to die today and people had to characterize who Gordon is, they would probably say Gordon has done a lot of writing and speaking about the inner life. And I think this is God's joke because I've never really fully felt that I was adequate in the inner life. And yet it's the thing that's driven me. Mm. Something encouraging about that. You're 77 years old? I'm 77, yeah. Something encouraging about being you being 77 and that you don't have it all together. It takes the pressure off of me and people who will be listening to this. Because I think that, by definition, the inner life is something that we should be inadequate at, don't you think? I think so. And, and I'll, go, I'll go one step further than that. Um, what I've come to conclude is that about every, I, I'm, I'm using kind of arbitrary numbers here, but about every 10 years of life, some of the basic agenda of who we are and what we're struggling for changes. So that it's not like you have this steady ramp upward in spiritual development, but at certain points in life, it's almost like you go back to kindergarten all over again and discover new things about the being of God the way he wants to relate to you and the things he's calling you to. So, you know, to give you an example, in my 70s, the overarching theme of these years has been loss. Mm -hmm. Every week, somebody I know dies. Um, I never faced death or loss when I was 35, 40 years of age. It was an academic subject uh, to be uh, referenced later on in life. But now I'm in the middle of it. I know statistically that Gail or I, probably one of us is going to be gone in the next eight years. Sounds very gloomy, but you better face up to it. And even as we're talking, I'm thinking this morning in the obituary columns of the New York Times, a very famous man died one year younger than me. And I get these reminders every day that life is, is beginning to move toward its ending point. That's, that's the theme of the 70s. And there are other themes for the 60s, 50s, 40s, and 30s. So you're beginning new spiritual climbs about every 10 years. How has the theme of loss in your 70s affected you spiritually? 
Well, it's made me, uh, I, I won't say this in priority order, but it has, it has sharpened my interest in heaven. Um, what is heaven? Where is it? What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like to meet people up there that have gone before you that you loved, but maybe even more significantly, how do you face people you didn't love? Uh, who were, you know, kind of strangers or enemies. What am I going to say to those people that went before me? And there, there, there could have been a little bit of coolness or resentment between the two of us. So those are practical questions about what heaven is going to be like. Um, I'm also interested in the question, how am I going to die? Um, you know, is it going to be fast? Is it going to be slow? Uh, we read a lot about Alzheimer's these days. So, um, you know, life can be extended in ways that are, are, are really not so happy. Um, what does it mean to suffer? What does it mean to suffer? Um, that, that's a very powerful point for people in their 70s. What, what does it mean to be lonely or to have friends who walk through this period of time? Uh, when you slowly begin to slip out of the public eye and become a quieter person? Those are all 70-year-old questions. Um, and, and I think, finally, how can a 70-year-old be productive and effective? Because I don't, I don't see the Bible saying there's a turnoff point in life where you no longer have usefulness to the kingdom of God. So I'm thinking every day about how to milk these 70s uh, for all that they have to offer, not just doing kingdom work, uh, but reading, growing, enlarging my knowledge of the world, um, uh, trying to be a spiritual father to young men in particular who are in the next generation, and maybe most significantly, um, I've had such a good life with Gail, um, especially in these last years. We really are having a ball together as a man and woman, and uh, I just want to mine that for everything it's got to offer. I want to go back to the moment in 68 that you talked about uh, where you heard this is what it's like to live with an empty soul. I think in our instant gratification, uh, have a big moment world, there's a tendency for people to think, okay, wow, you wept for four or five hours. And, and you everything got it all was all right. right. Yeah, and, and everything was all right. But two things, you referred to how... Every seven years or so, we go through cycles of needing to address things, but also that didn't guarantee that everything was all right for you. How did that impact you as a leader? No, with that crisis, I call it a crisis, but what that moment, that experience did was it, would, it awakened me to some terrible inadequacies in my formation of life that I had not yet paid attention to. I know that in my seminary days and wherever I went in my 20s, I, I came under the um, influence of some very godly women and men. I mean, really special people. I, I read some of the wonderful literature that was available, both from the Catholic side and the Protestant side. So all that information about a deeper life was out there in the form of people and in the form of resources. But I think each one of us has to come to a moment when we become hungry for that, when we, in, when we internalize it. And up to that point, my whole life was, my, I don't want to get too extreme about this, but my life was basically um, founded on uh, what I would call the natural, the natural giftedness that almost everybody has. 
and I've already recited those to you. The my I grew up in a pastor's home. I knew I knew virtually everything there was about running a church before I was 16 years of age. <laughs> my father was an inveterate teacher, and if if there was nobody else to teach, he picked on me. And so you know, I went with him on occasion when he made pastoral calls. I sat in a few elders meetings year after year and watched how a church was governed. I had copies of his sermon notes many times as he preached a sermon. So I learned all the skills of church leadership at a very young age. And going through seminary, there were, I don't mean this to sound um, immodest, but I probably could have told the professor a few things about how to run a church. So, you know, in my 20s, everything started off very fast for me. And when I got out of seminary, there were just a lot of good predictions about where I was going to be headed. But here I am now in the story I just told you at the age of 30, 31. And suddenly I begin to slip and slide. And the natural gifts aren't making it any longer. I'm physically exhausted. I'm emotionally spent. I'm spiritually dry. I'm facing issues in the church that are larger than me. And suddenly I realize there's a whole dimension of Gordon that I've pretty much have ignored I've you know I've gone through some of the traces I'm not going to say I wasn't a man of some prayer of Bible reading but you know I was just a young kid um, like a lot of young pastors who who thought he was doing well but he had so much more to learn so that was the day that God says I have something I, I, I want to awaken you that was the beginning and and it started and it's still going on my explanation explanation of how one does care for the inner side of them I'm an introvert my world inside is much larger than my world outside uh, you can't give me a better gift than to say you got a whole day by yourself uh, because I don't have any trouble thinking, uh, reading, reflecting uh, by myself. I don't need people to keep on going. My wife is an extrovert. She needs people. And so we, we're, we're a good match for each other. But uh, that, was, that was kind of the day when God awakened me. And I've been on a lifelong journey in exploring how you feed the soul. So would you say that for uh, young leaders, pastors other Christian leaders, that it's a, it's a necessity to come to that point of brokenness and kind of coming to the end of ourselves so that we can move out of the external way of defining ourselves? It's axiomatic. If, 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 a, if a man or a woman in Christian leadership wants to lead people to, toward God, if you want to see some people around you really experience a deeper life change that makes Jesus first and foremost as the the person around whom they organize their life. You've got to do it first. People have got to begin to sense that there's a quality, a nature within you that's unusual, uh, that defies explanation. All I know is that when, you're, when they're in your presence, they feel something of the convicting work of the Spirit. They feel um, a level of wisdom and insight, discernment, that they don't see in many people. And one doesn't turn that stuff on like a toggle switch. One spends a lifetime acquiring it. I sometimes smile and I'll say to people, when I was a young man, uh, if someone wanted to compliment me, they would say, oh, man, you're so smart. Now, at this point in my life, if someone wants to compliment me, they usually squint their eyes and say, you're so wise. Mm -hmm. And I've begun to realize, smart is a young person's uh, adjective. Wise is an old person's adjective. You, you you don't get the appellation wise 
uh, until you've got a lot of years, and that means suffering, it means mistakes, it means experience, it means stretching yourself, it means losing, it means winning, and that that layers year after year after year. And somewhere in a, a person's 60s and 70s, we begin to set that person out and say, "There's a there's a person of God. There's a man or a woman who." who really does speak on behalf of heaven. Um, the wisdom that they speak, where does it come from? Well, then we say to ourselves, well, that, that kind of thing comes from the Holy Spirit. But that's something that comes with age, or it can come earlier, but that means it usually has come by suffering. I was just going to say, would you think that there's a like a direct relationship between the amount of suffering, failure, brokenness, and, and wisdom that emerges out of that? Yes, Christianity is a suffering religion. Say more about that. Well, it it, uh, it doesn't really begin to penetrate a person until we have we have been truly broken, and um, I'll, I'll be very blunt with you right now with an opinion. Evangelical Christianity is not a broken a faith of brokenness. We talk about it sometimes. We have words uh, talk about that, but if you really look hard at the way most of us. The way most of us carry on our, our basic Christian lives, we don't believe in brokenness. We we believe in, I'll make up a word, bestness. You, we, we start with people at the very top as if everybody in church is smiling, everybody's happy. And what, is a, what does the preacher have to do? He has to spend the first 10 or 15 minutes trying to get people to recognize that sin is real, that they may be caught in a web of, of some kind of sin or whatever. I'll give you the contrast. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, for, th- for almost three years, back just a few years ago, I went to AA meetings three times a week. Not because I'm a drinker, I'm not. But because I was counseling with some executives who were alcoholics. And when they talked about AA meetings, I felt like I was listening to someone describe what I felt the church should be. So I, did, I, I found an open AA meeting in my community. I went to it, and I was deeply welcomed. And so I kept going uh, two to three times a week for two or three years. It was wonderful. And one of the reasons it was wonderful is because the price of a ticket to the circle was brokenness. Everybody around the circle assumed that everybody else was broken and needed repair. And so, uh, as one guy said to me, in AA, um, we're simply a bunch of drunks helping each other stay dry or sober for the next 24 hours. I love that. Um, and I, I tried to pull that into my own view of myself, that I start as a broken man and build upwards. I don't start as a made person going downward. And I think evangelicalism um, really struggles for a lot of reasons to capture the notion of genuine brokenness and repentance, which then takes us back to the cross on a regular basis. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.